morning. This is the Real Estate for Breakfast podcast. This is your host, Phil Coover. I'm a partner with Ice Miller. And today we're going to have two of my colleagues, two of my fellow partners, Brian Christ, who's a partner in our real estate group, who practices, concentrates his practice in business, real estate, environmental, public-private partnerships, and privatization law. Brian does a lot of the big infrastructure developments and works with developers and the public sector. Josh Christie is our other guest. He's a partner of our firm's business group. Josh primarily focuses on mergers and acquisitions, corporate transactions, commercial agreements, general corporate matters, and financing transactions. But today, we're going to talk about, um, and Josh you know, currently is living the, the SBA loan and the stimulus package is, is daily life. So today, what we wanted to do is... Uh, there's so many things going on right now in the in the business and real estate world that are intersecting, and there's different legislation in terms of the stimulus packages. We have the Fed doing their own credit facility, and we have different um, adjustments to the 1031 exchange rules. To we have proposed legislation on rent moratoriums. We have executive orders being issued as to defaults in Ohio and other areas, and so. What we just want to do is have our partners come on. We're having these these conversations offline, and so we're so come on and share what we can with with Josh and with Brian because they're so knowledgeable about these things. But I just want to do one quick little legal disclaimer before I introduce Brian and Josh. I just want to say this is not legal advice. Uh, each specific instance. We have this legal disclaimer on our podcast all the time, but it's more important today. Each instance should be referred to your counsel to discuss in the context of their your specific situation. What we're trying to provide today is a little bit of an overview of all these different things that are going on and allow you to kind of issue spot um, what might be relevant to your situation so you can discuss that with your legal professional. So, Josh, Brian, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Phil. This is, uh, this is a great opportunity. Looking forward to, to the conversation. Yeah, thanks, Phil. Really looking forward to it as well. So, um, you know, I've given a little bit of background, but um, let's start with Josh because I think the hot topic is the the SBA loans and the federal stimulus package. Josh, can you give us a little bit of an overview about what you're seeing out there? Yeah, it's it's been kind of an uh, interesting few weeks here. You know, I think the the first thing we saw was um, almost uh, immediately once uh, it became clear how widespread this pandemic pandemic was going to be, um, and states started issuing stay home orders. Um, the SBA uh, made its uh, uh, um, you know its economic in- injury disaster loan program available for small businesses. Um, you know, you hear people talk about the IDLE or the EIDL. That, that's the program they're talking about. And, you know, I think the reason they did that is it was already an infrastructure that was in place. Um, and and it's this is the same program um, that's available for businesses that are harmed by their natural disasters. So, you know, when we have tornadoes that sweep through, uh, you know, parts of the country or, you know, a, a hurricane or, or something that that is a devastating immediate event that small businesses might not be able to recover from if they didn't have access to some capital from a source other than just going to a bank and getting a loan. Um, so the EIDL program opened up quickly. Um, 
it provides for low interest loans of uh, up to $2 million for small businesses. They can, um, you know, borrow with, uh, you know, some level of personal guarantee and some level of collateral, but that's more of a, you know, check the box rather than an adequacy test coming from the SBA. Um, so so th- since that program was in place, the SBA um, called the coronavirus pandemic a, a disaster that would allow people to apply for this program. So that was all pre-CARES Act. Um, and we saw kind of a flurry of folks trying to apply through that program, so much so that, again, this was the first instance of you know, kind of the first inkling to the the folks at the SBA and the financing folks of how widespread the economic injury was going to be here because their system immediately crashed. Um, and a lot of folks had trouble getting applications through. And, and I last I checked on it this morning and it's there's actually been such a high volume that it, it, it doesn't appear that the SBA is taking new applications at this time. Um, but again, this was an attempt to get money out there as fast as possible for these businesses that are that have gone from you know, being okay to basically out of business uh, overnight, you know, largely due to these, these stay home orders. Um, you know, I think this has hit, you know, retail, hospitality, restaurants, especially hard because um, they obviously rely on folks to, to come in person. Um, so kind of the, the next wave of SBA funding, which, which has been the really hot topic for the past couple of weeks uh, was the, the uh, paycheck protection program that was uh uh, part of the CARES Act. Um, this is a you know novel program that it's like nothing we've ever seen before, uh, both in administration and in scope. And what it basically does is for small businesses, which you know the definition of a small business was greatly expanded um, for purposes of this program. Uh, it, it it allows small businesses to borrow what's essentially two months of uh, payroll costs um, to keep folks employed. And if a, um, if an eligible business receives these funds, um, you know, it's initially structured as a loan, um, then the, you know, the entire amount of the loan could potentially be forgiven if they spend um, the, 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 the funds on um, qualified expenses, which is essentially uh, payroll. It's, um, rent, uh, it's utilities, um, and, and it can, it can be certain mortgage payments. Um, there are a few strings attached to that because again, this is intended to, uh, keep folks employed who would otherwise not probably have jobs or at least would experience, you know, reductions in either work or pay, um, in the immediate future due to the, the, the coronavirus outbreak. Um, and so businesses are required to, um, you know, keep their headcount at, at a normalized level um, compared to prior periods and to not reduce pay of folks who are making less than $100,000 a year. Um, and, and it's all measured based on this eight-week period following when uh, a business receives the loan. Um, so that, uh, again, you know, it's, it's, to, it's to keep folks employed till we get a little further through this. Um, when they set the program up, uh, I think largely due to the anticipated volume of uh, participants, what, what the, the Cures Act did was put this under 
the SBA's normal uh, guaranteed loan program. You, you hear people talk about the SBA's 7A loan program, uh, which is under normal circumstances, um, a, a loan program available to small businesses. Um, and to, to be qualify as small, you have to meet both um, typically employee uh, uh, size requirements and uh, there's a cap on uh, revenue as well. So it's, it's truly geared towards small businesses. Um, and it's intended to be a program where a business that really can't access the capital it needs to grow anywhere else can get some capital because the government provides uh, usually a 70 to 80% guarantee of the loan amount so that a bank can underwrite the loan based on, um, uh, you know, it can, it can underwrite a larger loan based on a smaller collateral package, essentially. Uh, and so typically it's a very in-depth due diligence process there are a lot of things that the borrowers have to show to, um, to, to, to the bank and to the SBA to get the, to participate in this program. Um, and then, uh, um, you know, the, the, the bank receives a, a guarantee and, and some collateral and, and makes the loan. Well, here, you know, it, it, it appears that while the, there was infrastructure in place for the, the banks to administer these loans, that's really the, the, the only piece of, of the PPP program that's similar to the normal 7A program. Mm -hmm. um, basically, you know, it, the, the fact that the government was anticipating such a high volume of applications, I think they needed the banks involved so they could process all of, all of the applications. Yeah. That, that turned out to absolutely be true. You know, at, at this point, um, the initial $350 billion allocated to this program is, is completely spoken for um, as of uh, earlier this week. Um, and that was... Yeah, Josh, yeah. Well, well, not to interrupt you, but I should, yeah, yeah. Mention, I should mention this. is that We're recording this on April 17th, and we hope to put it up early next week around the, the 20th or the 21st. So if you, you know... I usually try to say that in most of my podcasts when we're recording it, but I think for this topic and anything COVID-19 related, you got to date it because sure. the information can be irrelevant a week from now or something. And yes, so it also gives context to your point that in the past 24 hours, there have been a lot of news articles about the entire program has run dry. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I, I believe it, the funds ran out as of April 15th. Um, and that was um, that allocation was among 1.7 million companies. Um, so, wow. I mean, lenders who are typically processing, you know, hundreds, maybe a couple thousand applications a year in an SBA program uh, were, were processing. In some cases, we heard from one lender that they processed almost 30,000 applications over the course of a, a less than two week period. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it, it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out because again, that first allocation a, as of the middle of April is spoken for, um, and we're all anticipating, um, a, a second allocation, probably sometime the, 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 the week of, uh, of, of April 20th, um, which we've heard so far is likely to be 250 billion additional dollars for this. So at the end of the day, assuming that program goes through, um, this program might be able to put $600 billion um, in the hands of probably around 3 million small businesses 
specifically in order to keep their folks employed. Um, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, it's the administration of this is through a program that's really has has a different purpose. Um, but a lot of the rules still apply. So, you know, when when the SBA or when the CARES Act established this program, they relaxed um, a lot of the size requirements. So basically, um, rather than having to both show you have under a certain level of employees and under a certain level of revenue, uh, pretty much any business with less than 500 employees can apply through this program, regardless of what their revenue situation is. Um, and that was relaxed even further for the hospitality industry. Um, certain hospitality businesses can apply regardless of how many employees they have. And so, you know, what that's meant is some some fairly complex analysis that we've had to go through for a number of clients, particularly in, in the real estate space, because... Um, there, there are rules about how you count employees that require you to, if you're, a, if you're a potential borrower, to aggregate your employee count with all of your affiliates, uh, which is des- defined as, um, you know, any company under common control. Um, so when you get into some larger um, companies that still, you know, you, you could have a development company that itself um, is under um you know, under 500 employees, but depending on how its investments are structured, if it has outside investors that could be deemed to control certain of its projects, then you don't just look at the development company, you look at all of the companies that are under common control with that particular investor. Um, so the, 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 in, in the way the affiliation rules are written, you know, again, this is geared towards small businesses who typically do not have this complex of an, the, the complexity of an org structure that we see in, in, in some businesses that have a broader project reach and a, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, more affiliates. So so that's been an analysis we've had to go through. And, and you know, the, the other piece we're dealing with on those is there's really not a lot of guidance out there. I think, you know, the goal of this program was to get money out there fast. And so there just hasn't been time to issue a lot of specific regulations to think through some of these issues that they come up. Um, you know, the SBA has pushed out, or I guess it's the Department of Treasury has pushed out um, as much guidance as they can. But again, it's happening so fast that some of it is, you know, a little bit inconsistent. Some of it's not really um, even on point. Um, you know, another good example of an issue we've been looking at uh, in this space is, you know, it, how does a property owner that contracts management out to a management company um, count employees? Uh, we've seen this in particular, you know, in, in the hotel space where, you know, you have a uh, real estate company owns a hotel project and contracts with one of the big national hotel management companies uh, uh, to manage, man, to basically operate the hotel. Um, the way those contracts are typically structured, as you and Brian know, is, you know, there's a pass through of payroll costs from the management company to the owner. Um, and so we've had to look at whether that means that, um, the, the, the owner, since it's ultimately responsible for the payroll costs can apply through this program, um, and, and get some relief, uh, to continue to, to, to pay those folks, uh, who are, operating these hotels that, uh, you know, that, that really don't have a lot of business right now. So it's, you know, it's, it's been an interesting road. Now, 
you know, again, uh, as of the middle of April, the first tranche of funding is is gone. Um, folks are starting to actually receive their loans and start spending it on payroll. So our shift, our shift in focus now has been talking to a lot of uh, um, our clients about, okay, what are the allowable uses of these funds? And what is my, you know, what, if I spend the funds in this way, what impact could it have on whether or not my loan is ultimately forgiven? Um, and, you know, again, there's, there, there's minimal guidance on this point. So we're, we're all, you know, as of the minute, middle of April, really hoping for some additional regulations to come out to uh, shed some light on how the, the forgiveness is going to work. But I, you know, I, I would anticipate that unless a, you know, a, a substantial amount of additional money is allocated here, um, we're probably going to um, see a little bit of a, a lull in activity on uh, the SBA front, at least for probably a few weeks until we get closer to the time when folks really have to start making their forgiveness applications to try to get some relief uh, from, from paying back these loans. That's right. Yeah, no, I want to talk about the um, the forgiveness aspect and how to spend the money. But um, I want to ask Brian a little bit because, you know, th that was an awesome overview of the programs that are currently available. But never before has the real estate industry been so tied to how operating businesses that aren't real estate businesses uh, are functioning. So, Brian, uh, how are you seeing uh, from a real estate perspective, um, landlords particularly kind of help tenants facilitate getting these loans and how are you seeing it, this interact? Well, I mean, one of the great unknowns uh, right now, um, although there is some data that's starting to trickle out that we'll get to in a minute, is um, <clears throat> how many folks in real estate, whether you're a tenant or a borrower, paid uh for monthly obligations between April 1st and April 5th. Um, and certainly from the anecdotal evidence that we uh, were receiving prior to April 1st and right after, um, there were a lot of folks um, that weren't planning on paying the rent. And in turn, there were a lot of landlords that weren't, uh, were, uh, were not planning on uh, paying their monthly loan payments. And so there's just this kind of circular firing squad, you know, that's, you know, between uh, tenants, landlords and, uh, and lenders right now with respect to, um, you know, who can and, and who is going to pay, you know, their monthly obligations. Um, I just recently, uh, a couple hours ago, I saw some of some uh, data from the uh, retail industry that indicated there was at least a 50% drop in national tenants paying rent and uh, some very surprising wow. uh, national tenants just not paying at all, like paying zero. Obviously, that has a significant impact on a landlord's ability to meet its own obligations, uh, particularly to its lenders. Um, and, and most certainly, uh, they, they won't be able to make their obligations to their investors. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy statistic, and never in my career have I heard of a situation where half the country is not paying the rent. Um, it, it's truly unbelievable to hear. Well, and this is just the first step. I mean, this is the first step of this of this crisis. I think the the, the May and June and July are, are probably going to be worse as the economic uh, effects of the uh, national and regional shutdowns um, really put the screws on companies 
that were not able to avail themselves of uh, the 7A program or weren't able to operate. You know, I mean, at least you know, for a law firm, you know, and I've spoken with uh, many friends across the country um, in, you know, in, in even the large uh, law firms. And, you know, we're all reporting the same, you know, the, the same issues. You know, our collections are starting to drop. Um, you know, there's concern about uh, collecting uh, on the work that we're performing right now, because I think, you know, particularly everybody in real estate and then the transactional practices is really busy. Um, but our, our situation, you know, as in the legal industry is very different than a lot of um, a lot of tenants and, and folks that are operating business where their their income doesn't just drop 10, 20 percent. It went from March at 100 percent to April zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're right. That's just unprecedented, and it's really hard uh, to predict how that's gonna how that's gonna uh, play its way out um, in commercial real estate. Uh, multifamily appears to be holding up, at least on the student side. I've gotten some data from the student side, and they, they have appeared to have held up pretty well. Um, but with rent moratorium, you know, some of the rent moratorium legislation that's uh, weaving its way um, through state houses, particularly in New York and New Jersey. Um, April may be, you know, the best month that those asset classes see for quite some time as well. Although if you have a Freddie or Fannie loan, um, you can get a, you know, it, this was actually part of the CARES Act. You can get um, a, uh, a, a three-month abatement of your obligation as a landlord to pay your Freddie or Fannie loan. Um, in exchange, you have to have moratoriums on, uh, on tenant evictions and some other strings that are attached to it. Uh, but if you have a Freddie or Fannie loan, it's worth talking to your counsel and reaching out to find out if you can get some 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 uh, some loan relief. Um, also heard some anecdotal evidence uh, from a friend of mine uh, that um, has some pretty good connections within uh, Freddie and Fannie. And uh, the three, if you ask nice enough, um, you can probably get a longer extension than just 90 days. So. Um, it's definitely worth uh, touching base with your your counsel if you're a landlord in, in, in those situations in, in that situation to see if you can get some relief on your 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 loan obligations. Uh, that's really good information. I know that's that's huge for a lot of people right now. Um, well, Brian, Brian, Phil, if I if I can, I think Brian touched on an interesting subject here, which is you know we 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 are kind of seeing that kind of behavior start. I think we're seeing um, banks behave cautiously and patiently right now. But, you know, I think everyone's anticipating exactly what Brian just went through in terms of, of, you know, basically every industry, including the real estate industry's revenue for the next few months, which is going to mean, you know, almost everyone is going to be out of covenant compliance, most certainly for the second quarter. You know, I think there's a high likelihood in, in Q3 as well, depending on, how far into July and August, um, you know, this, this, this lasts. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what, how lenders react to that. Um, you know, I, I think they, they aren't going to be in a position where they can take action against every project that's out of covenant compliance. That just isn't going to be manageable. I, you know, I, I, in, in talking to some, you know, some banks and some other attorneys, it, it seems likely that we're going to be in a scenario where, you know, everybody's going to hear from their lender, hey, don't worry about being out of compliance in Q2, but we're going to need some progress when you get to Q3. Maybe not you have to be back in compliance, but, you know, we're going to have to see some trending in the right direction. Um, and I think that's going to be combined with, you know, some, some of the similar uh, 
things we saw, you know, kind of in, in 2009, 2010, where, you know, covenants are just going to have to be reset because the world's going to be different for a while. So I, I think that if, if you're anticipating what's coming, um, I think that's something that's going to, that, that, you know, if you're a developer, you should be thinking about and probably starting to talk to your, your, um, your lender about now to just to understand what the picture is going to look like when we do start to come out of this. Yeah, I, I will give, you know, I'm a, I'm a borrower's counsel. That's probably 98% of what I've done in my lifetime. So, you know, I definitely have a developer and owner perspective um, with respect uh, to commercial real estate, but I will uh, give my friends on the lending side of the ledger a lot of credit. Um, even in March, uh, the last couple of weeks of March, um, I with friends um, on that side of the trade and uh, including some folks that were, uh, you know, that, that works within uh, commercial banking itself. And they were already helping their clients figure this issue out, anticipating that over the next couple of months, they were going to have cash flow issues through no fault of their own. Uh, I even heard uh, one banker uh, tell me that uh, for really good clients of the firm, uh, or for the uh, bank, they were uh, helping those clients unwind their automatic uh, pay, their uh, automatic loan payment uh, components of their their operating accounts, so they weren't immediately in default on April first when you know they didn't have the money because their tenants weren't going to pay them. Um, wow. So I, right. I, I do, yeah. It's it, I give 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 the the the, the commercial banking industry credit for. Uh, being much more proactive this time around, and also I, I think just a general sense of you know hey we you know particularly those of us who were around ten years ago uh, we all get out of this if we if we just don't lose our heads and and, um, and and we try to cooperate with one another and understand you know everybody's dealing with the same reality. Yeah, I, I, kind of what we're talking about here is I do worry about we have the initial economic collapse we have. Over 20 million unemployment claims right now. Um, the numbers of the unemployment claims are unprecedented. But this real estate lending world, I worry about a second wave of economic collapse where we have 90-day moratoriums on um, evictions in some circumstances. We have the governor of Ohio who issued an executive order requesting that no defaults uh, – I have air quotes over requesting because we're not yeah. sure. That means um, that there's no defaults taken from the lender or the landlord side. It's kind of everything is going to be stacked up. You know, the courts are closed right now. Uh, so we have everything kind of stacking up. So there's going to be a secondary economic collapse um, that we all have to deal with kind of in Q3 where all these real estate defaults are are stacked up. Yeah, it's uh... – it will be interesting. I mean, what happens in the next couple of months? I mean, what, what I fear this time around is we're not going to be dealing with covenant defaults, which after barking back and forth during the financial crisis, I think, as Josh said, um, we just, you know, the, the industry just went back and renegotiated a lot of those covenants. If those covenant defaults turn into, you know, I just can't pay defaults, that's a completely different beast. And, um, you know, it, it, particularly if it's a systemic problem. Um, I would expect to see more federal legislation uh, to prevent, you know, a, a complete down um, if, if there really is a, a crisis in, in the ability, you know, as an industry to to pay a lot of the debt off. All right. So we do have this uh, upcoming economics challenge situation. But I think what we're saying is that, you know, banks might have to just sort of say, 
I have three buckets. I have a bucket of performing assets. I have a bucket of non-performing asset, but do I really want to foreclose on all of these parties? Um, but you know, they, these are borrowers that I know and have a reasonable plan to how to uh, restructure and work out the debt. And then they have probably a bucket that's much too large, but it's, you know, this shopping center lost half their tenants that never reopened. And uh, there's just no salvaging this asset through the current loan terms. And we're just going to have to proceed. And hopefully that last bucket won't be as, as large as we all fear. Yeah, I think that's a good summation of, of you know, the decision tree for, for the commercial uh, lending, uh, real estate lending industry in the next uh, three to six months. But Josh has got to get Josh has got to get these companies some loans. Yeah, that's that's what right. We're looking at. So, Josh, tell me about the federal. The Fed came out with a, a credit facility. Kind of reminded me of what we saw with TARP back in I don't know, like '09. Um, does the either the Phase Four, the Economic Stabilization Program, or this Fed? credit facility, does that give us hope to be another method to get companies some cash to weather the storm? Yeah, that, I mean, theoretically, yes. I think it kind of remains to be seen. Um, I, at this point, there's been so much focus on, you know, both in, in the legal com- community and the business community and in the banking community on, on the PPP program and administering those funds um, that, that we don't, you know, we have a little bit, but not a lot of clarity on, uh, what that program is going to look like. Um, essentially it's, you know, it, it's, has some of the same intents that the PPP program does, but the money's going to be spent, um, you know, in a different way, it's going to be available to much larger companies. Um, it's structured basically as a way for, uh, federal funds to be used to participate alongside commercial banks. Um, so that again, we're, we're trying to take some of the, the normal roadblocks out of the process that a bank might go through and deciding to lend some funds. Um, and it's going to require, you know, taking steps to keep folks employed. It's going to require, you know, companies to commit to not, um, you know, paying outrageous executive comp. Um, and you know, there are going to be some more strings attached and it's going to have to be repaid. Unlike the, the PPP, which can be forgiven, the, this is all uh, loan funding. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think it is again, it's it's credit that might not otherwise be put out there in order to keep some of these folks afloat. Um, we're still waiting on a lot of regulation to be issued to understand exactly what this program looks like, and we're also still. I think it's a, you know, it, we're not seeing the same behavior from, um, from from potential borrowers in this program that we saw under the SBA program, just because, you know, it's, there's no, there's not this forgiveness aspect, which I think drove behavior to just, you know, go get it, go, go get the, the funds and figure the rest out later. Um, you know, it's been interesting over the past probably week or so. Um, the conversations have shifted from how do I get the money? Um, and, and, you know, what do I need to do to apply to, you know, we've been having more conversations with folks, who say, you know, okay, I've secured this loan. Um, I don't, based on my current business, I don't know if I can spend all that money during eight, the eight week period, what happens? Um, 
we're yeah. here, you know, and, and I don't know, you know, I'm, I, what did it mean when I certified that, you know, economic uncertainty makes it necessary for me to obtain these funds to continue my business operation? What, 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 what did I say? You know, what is this, what does this mean for, um, you know, what I have to do going forward? Um, and what's the enforcement mechanism? And the answer is we just don't know. Um, we haven't been provided with the guidance on that front yet, but we are starting to hear from um, folks who who were, were um, involved in, in, in enforcement actions after TARP and, you know, after some of the stimulus money that, that came with Hurricane Katrina or, or, um, or Sandy that, you know, look, if, if you're a big business who happened to qualify for the SBA program um, and it's a close call on, you know, whether you quote unquote needed the money, um, there may be some enforcement actions coming down the, the, the pike. And so the advice that those folks are giving people is, you know, you should think about whether you want to behave in the same way that we're asking the bigger companies to behave, you know, not making paying big executive bonuses, not, you know, making dividends to your shareholders, because if you were in a position to perform that well, did you really need this money? So it's, it's an interesting dynamic that, that that's coming. And, uh, you know, it, some I've seen a couple of folks positing that, you know, they, the enforcement actions um, under the SBA program may look to, you know, the, the, the similar types of restraints that are being put on the folks who are going to participate in the larger federal stimulus programs. Uh, that's super interesting. The other thing I was, uh, I've been hearing more of recently is from a real estate perspective, there's been a, a thought process that is, okay, for the smaller tenants, let's maybe defer some rent and let's help them, encourage them to apply for the PPP program they'll get two months worth of their their payroll costs, plus they can spend up to 25% on rent. So let's get them, let's bridge this gap, get the money, it will be forgiven. And then, you know, hopefully COVID will have gone away or died down and we'll all be on our way. But now kind of what I've heard a little bit of, murmurs of that are getting louder is that some companies are saying, okay, I furloughed all these employees because my restaurant was shut down or something. Um, and I thought that I was just going to be able to just pay it, everything out that I got, loan would be forgiven, and then we'll reopen. But but now I'm wondering, do I actually need that money? I may not be able to reopen next week. I need, I'm not going to be able to reopen until mid-June, let's say. And I kind of need that money in order to buy, repurchase inventory and other things, even if it converts to a loan that I do have to repay, I may not be able to just spend all the dollars on my employees because I'm just going to have to operate with a leaner payroll and maybe it won't be forgiven, but at least the business will survive. Yeah. It's an interesting problem. And, and, you know, to be clear, uh, you know, our reading of the regs is that, you know, it, even if you don't have the payroll, rent, utility, uh, mortgage interest costs to support spending the full amount, um, that doesn't make it an allowable use to spend it on other things. So the intent of this program is not to provide uh, working capital. So I think I think someone who's in that situation could get themselves in, in a little bit of hot water 
uh, by going out and spending the funds uh, on something else. But I think you've touched on an issue that, that a lot of our clients are dealing with. I mean, it, you know, because the loan amount in that program is calculated based on your average monthly payroll from the 12 months prior to applying for the loan. Um, or, or the SBA is actually letting you use just calendar year 2019. And that didn't, while that serves the goal of providing funding to keep employment at a steady level, for a lot of businesses, that doesn't allow for the fact that their, their business isn't functioning at the same level. Um, for instance, when you calculate full-time equivalents, you know, how does overtime fig- figure in? And that's, that's one of the things that you have to show to get your loan forgiven is I, you know, I, I've maintained the same level of full-time equivalent employees I had before um, this all happened. Well, I, I may be able to get folks, you know, sometime. I mean, I, I had a client ask me the other day, what am I, am I supposed to just bring everybody into my factory and give them a broom and tell them to sweep all day? Cause my customers are shut down. So I, I can't manufacture anything. Um, so it, it's creating some interesting problems um, and, and we just don't know what it means if I, I've tried my hardest to spend this cash and do everything I can, but my business didn't allow me to spend it all. So what do I do with it at the end of the period? Um, and again, it's not, not clear in the guidance, uh, you know, as of the middle of April, what, what the answer to that question is. Just to add on, you know, particularly the, you know, a real estate aspect of this. And I think Phil, you and I have both seen this where some landlords, uh, before they will uh, consider discussing rent relief uh, for their tenants, are requiring proof um, and, you know, proof and amount of the 7A loan that the tenant applied for. Um, I, I can, I understand why a landlord wouldn't want to do that. In fact, I've advised some of my landlord clients to do precisely that um, with the caveat that that loan is not, you know, only 25% of it, you know, can be used you know, to pay rent during this very short time period. And most of the negotiations I've seen between landlords and tenants have been between three and six months worth of abatement. So, you know, if you're a landlord um, and you're asking for that information, you know, that information because you think that is going to be, you know, a pot of gold that's going to get you whole on on your tenants who can't pay rent right now, um, you should probably lower your your expectations on what the 7A program is going to do for you uh, vis-a-vis your tenants. Now you should apply for your own 7A loan if you qualify, or you should have. Um, we'll see if there's another bite at the apple if the program, the uh, the, the facility gets uh, uh, gets increased or refunded or or some something like that. But you know, if you're a landlord, just you know, understand the limitations on the program um, as it uh, impacts your decision tree with your tenants. Yeah, and I'd say too. I mean, this is a program that lasts until June 30th. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of uh, landlords are going to find that a lot of their tenants may have been able to do something with this program, but are in largely the same position on July 1st that they, they were on April 1st. And so what what happens then? So, Brian, another thing I wanted to ask you is we're talking about landlord tenant negotiations. Um, you deal with borrowers that have very big loans and some of them are CMBS loans. Some of their other types of loans Um but one thing that, you know, we've been talking about that we're worried about is when when a tenant asks a landlord for a deferral or an abatement, uh, landlords sometimes have to consider how their lender will view 
that that relief and sometimes they have to get permission or sometimes they're prohibited from getting that from giving those sorts of concessions um, because of springing recourse guarantees. Can you tell us a little bit about what that all means? Yeah, it's uh, the, the first place any landlord uh, should start in considering what sort of uh, concessions or relief they can give to a tenant is uh, pull out your loan documents and um, have your attorney take a look at them. Um, if you uh, have a commercial real estate loan with a bank, uh, a, rela- it's a relationship loan with a commercial lender, um, you can probably it, it's probably pretty easy to pick up the phone and just talk to your lender for guidance on you know what they're going to approve and what they're not going to approve um, in terms of your your leasehold covenants um, in your your commercial loan. Uh, the problem becomes much much more serious if you have a CMBS loan, a life loan, or some other loan that has non-recourse debt on it, um, which, you know, for the uninitiated, non-recourse debt is uh, debt that you don't have to pay, re- repay back, even if the asset itself fails, absent some specific circumstances that people commonly refer to as bad boy carve-outs. Unfortunately, the way bad boy carve-outs are tr- uh, uh, traditionally drafted in most non-recourse guarantees I just love that term. It's such an oxymoron, but uh, it, yeah. is, it, it is the term for the for this type of guarantee. That's for sure. Uh, the, there are cer- certain carve outs uh, that probably are triggered, or at least arguably triggered, in the event that you voluntarily, as a landlord, cut a deal with a tenant to accept less rent than what is provided for in the lease itself. And so you could wake up with a very nasty surprise in a year um, that you have triggered recourse liability to yourself um, in terms of this loan um, that you assumed would have no recourse uh, because you did the right thing or the practical thing. Um, then the problem that there's a second level of that problem, even that, that um, we don't know. I don't think anybody knows how it's going to play out yet. And that is if you have particularly have a serviced loan, so it's a CMBS loan. Um, that has non-recourse debt, it's not as simple as picking up the phone and calling uh, your lender and asking for guidance or approval of your leasing strategy. Um, Servicers, even in the best of times, have been notoriously difficult to to contact. They've been uh, notoriously difficult to negotiate with. Um, And and it's it's, it's probably the subject of of a different podcast on um, some of the conflicts and structural issues um, with loans, uh, you're not likely to be able to get anybody on the phone to give you any guidance. But then you have, you know, but then you're kind of caught, you're, you're caught between two opposing forces if you're the landlord. You have your recourse guarantee that you don't want to violate. Then you have your tenants that, you know, are, are are probably honestly telling you like, look, if I don't get some sort of, you know, uh, rent abatement over the next three or six months, I might not make it. And then you don't have a tenant and your loan's in default and lose the asset. Um, and I, I have not heard of anybody that has had any particular success of having a discussion uh, with a, uh, with a, with a loan servicer regarding these issues, um, including some folks um, that swim in pretty deep in the pretty uh, deep uh, end of the, the capital pool um, have had <laughs> difficulties uh, of uh, even finding somebody to talk to. Um, some of uh, my friends that are on the commercial lending side uh, ha- ha- are, are just as concerned about this um, as, you know, as the borrower owner side, 
because they think that the servicers are going to be probably really aggressive looking for recourse under these guarantees next year, um, you know, in order to uh, recoup their losses on their loan portfolios. So that's that's a really significant issue. And if you have that type of loan, um, you really need to have somebody uh, scour your loan documents so you know the rules of the game so you don't w- uh, wake up with a real nasty surprise next year. Oh, good. Another another thing we can be terrified about. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I want to be respectful of your guys' time. You know, one of the, the reasons why we want to do this podcast is I'm seeing a lot of attorneys right now put out content that is very technical. They're very specific about the CARES Act and the PPP Act and how those requirements. And I find it a little bit dry. It's necessary for a practitioner. But what we're trying to do with three of us is just have sort of this practical discussion about how these things actually work and who's using them and how they can be of use and what some of the problems are. And so I really appreciate uh, your time, Brian, your time, Josh. Uh, for coming on and sort of sharing these considerations. Um, is there anything else that you want to uh, to let people know and uh, tell us now? And if people out there want more of this type of discussion, please uh, be sure to email us. We have Brian Christ, Josh Christie, and Phil Coover of Ice Miller. Um, we're very accessible online. Google will get us. Um, gentlemen? Phil, thanks, thanks for uh, having me on. This is this has been a, a ton of fun to to have this conversation. Uh, you know, it, you kind of touched on it a little earlier that you know all, all the things we're talking about right now seem to be you know just really worst case bad scenarios. But I, I think it's important for everyone to keep in mind that you know this is something that as we've seen with the stay home orders and the shelter in place and folks, you know respecting social distancing that it it is coming under control and it is going to end and we're going to come out of this and so you know what we're really trying to game plan for here is is to to bring as many people out of this in in the best way possible uh but it 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 will end it's it's not you know it's not it's not the apocalypse here yeah um again uh, thank you phil uh from my perspective as well it's been a lot of fun and um i agree with josh um, having practiced through the financial crisis, um, even though a lot of the economic data that's coming down the pipe, you know, just blows away any of the statistics that we saw during the financial crisis. Um, I've at least had a sense through um, the last uh, six weeks that there's a better chance of us coming out of this situation better and stronger and quicker than the financial crisis surely because of the scale of it you know I mean, it's truly national in scope it touches everybody there's nobody that's that that's 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 gonna you know that, that that can skip out of this one whereas in the financial crisis you know it's 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 kind of hard to remember but you know it it, it occurred over a, a, a significant period of time it just didn't it wasn't just a two-week period it you know it started and it enrolled on for you know the meat of it for about a year year and a half and there was definitely a narrative of you know well this is just certain people's problems and and, and some of that was true 
uh, even though those you know problems uh, that affected a certain number of people ended up affecting everybody. I just think the immediacy of this and how it's impacted everybody that there's going to be p- people are going to move faster. They're going to be more innovative in how they try to resolve problems. And we've already seen that. We've seen it with the CARES Act. We've seen it with how proactive the banks were even in March, uh, helping out their clients. Um, you've seen it in terms of how quick landlords and tenants have opened up negotiations to, you know, to try to stem the gap in the last three to six months. So, um, you know, I know it does sound doomy and gloomy um, it, it, and it's, it's, it is a heavy subject, but at least from my perspective, I, I have a lot more confidence um, that we're going to come out of this. And this just this just feels like there's there's this feels different than financial crisis, even though, you know, again, it, it is a bigger deal, I think, because it is a bigger deal. That's why there's hope. Uh, that's great. Those are great perspectives, guys. Uh, thank you for very much for coming on the show and for sharing your knowledge. This publication is intended for general information purposes only and does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. The listener should consult with legal counsel to determine how laws or decisions discussed herein apply to the listener's specific circumstances.